Welcome to Industry Leaders Journey, where we explore the lives and careers of conscious leaders who are making a positive impact on this world while they transform the supply chain and procurement business. My name is Su Shem. Today, we'll take you to a very unusual place and fascinating organization that has, I could say, the most brilliant people in the world. As a bonus, we'll take a bit of a history lesson from Kristen Hip, the leader of Acquisition Services Center of Excellence at Los Alamos National Lab in the USA. Let's begin this journey. Kristen, thank you for coming to the podcast. You're my first public sector industry leader on this podcast. I know that this is not regular government that you think of, so... <laughs> You work in this one of these uh, most scientifically advanced place on earth. That's what I was told. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I uh, work at Los Alamos National Lab. Uh, funnily enough, a lot of places I go, um, people aren't really familiar with the lab, but it actually uh, was founded in 1942 as part of the Manhattan Project, which is a was a super secret project um, with scientists all over in different locations in the country working to create the first um, viable atomic weapon. Obviously, it was a pretty tumultuous time right after the war. Uh, I think the lab almost went away, Mm -hmm. Uh, but there was some really foresightful leaders who realized that they could take what they had developed during the war, which was this synergy amongst the world leading scientists and continue to solve problems. So they established the lab as a long-term national lab. Um, We at Los Alamos are very proud of our heritage. Really today, the lab, you know, continues its mission with the government. We're basically a government contractor. So we work for the Department of Energy. Right now, we're managed by a really interesting company that operates us for the federal government that's made up of Battelle, um, the University of California and Texas A&M. So we have a lot of ties still to the university culture. We're very much an R&D institution. Um, we work on cutting edge science. There's the Human Genome Project. Uh, we have scientists who created the ChemCam that's on Mars, that zaps all the rocks and tells you what's happening. Like in downtown Los Alamos, when they first launched the Mars rover, there was like a, a TV that you could watch the ChemCam, <laughs> the Mars rover live. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a very sciencey town, but everybody's really uh, kind of laid back. <laughs> which is why I think I fit in really well. Everybody's really, we work hard, play hard. Right. Oh my God. You, I'm sold. I think I have to move. <laughs> well, my friends joke that I should be the mayor of the town because I just never get up here. Yeah. But then how did you get to, they call it this uh, mountaintop, the hill, right? So how did yeah. you get to the hill? How did you climb up to the hill? It's so funny that um, my career, my her life is not really a straight line. Um, so I didn't grow up and say, like, I'm going into this career and obviously Lanel is the place I'm going to work. Instead, I went to UCLA and was a history major hmm. and uh, came out of university in 1991. Um, many of us remember kind of that era. It was a really different um, world back then when you went to university. At least UCLA was like this. It's very much a liberal arts education if that's what you pursued. Mm-hmm. And they were not preparing you for a job, but for teaching you how to think, learn, and understand things. And so when I got out of university, I was like, okay, I'm not really ready for graduate school. I'm not really sure what I want to do. Um, so I just got a job, right? I be- work- went to work as a, a legal secretary in the public defender's office. I really loved law a lot. 
Mm -hmm. um, I think it really fit well with being a history major. And I really, when I was young, thought that's what I'm going to be. I'm going to be a lawyer. And so I even took the LSAT and I was prepared to go to law school and then like life changed. I had a baby. And so that didn't happen. So as a, a woman and a mother, um, you kind of learn to adapt mm -hmm. and uh, I enjoyed raising my daughter uh, in Southern California. I actually started my own business. Opportunities just seem to arrive for me. I don't look for them. I don't know how that worked out in life. I feel very fortunate that it has just seems like I really ascribe to that idea when a door closes, another one opens. So I decided to move to New Mexico when my youngest daughter was five. I really wasn't moving for a career. I was moving for personal reasons. So I asked my friends like, oh, where do you work? And they pointed up the hill. And so off I went to get a job. <laughs> and um, that's where I landed. Well, so it's, go it's ahead. interesting that, uh, you know, you somehow you kind of figured it out then very in tune to your intuition and then also trusting that uh, life will unfold uh, easily and that optimism and openness will, you know, got you to this amazing place, uh, living in a beautiful place, working with the smartest people in the world. And <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Yeah, it's really pretty amazing um, working at Los Alamos. It's, I think we have like the largest number of PhDs in the country. Like we have, everybody's highly educated. Um, it can be intimidating at times. Yeah. It's funny. So, you know, when I first came up the hill, I had a law background, I had my own business, but yet again, like, how do you translate that into which part of the organization you're going into? I wasn't a scientist. Right. So naturally I fell into the business side of the house. And so like, I went into these jobs and immediately saw like ways I could improve or do things. And I learned that if I just asked for it, most people give you the work, mm -hmm. right? I guess I've never waited for somebody to offer me something, right. I usually go ask for it. And that has worked pretty well for me. Oh, that's a good uh, tip. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Wait, then go ask and then suggest. I, uh, I joke with a lot of uh, my staff that work with me because I really enjoy, you know, teaching like the next generation. And it's kind of, you know, just sharing my insights over time. And what I tell them always is, you know, if you see something and you have a solution to it, 99% of the time, your solution is going to win because nobody else bothers to come up with the solution, right? So mm -hmm. if you want to, you know, control the outcome, then you've got to do the work. And so it's really just about being willing to kind of put yourself out there, I think. Is yeah, probably. it sounds like you definitely had a right mindset to be successful, actually, you know, so <laughs> it doesn't matter what degree, what you have, but, you know, you just figuring it out using your unique skill sets and gifts that you got and then always looking for the opportunity to improve. I mean, uh, that's perfect. That's exactly what we need. <laughs> so speaking <laughs> of that, that led you to this amazing career now and then uh, very, very successful uh, in Leno and uh, helping the organization be even more successful successful. So let's talk about what you do in there. Yeah. So I really do kind of attribute the kind of education I received as a liberal arts major. It takes me up a level. I didn't get trained at like the micro level. So when I look at things, I tend to look at them from the macro level, right? I see all the moving parts. And so I've taken that and used it through my career. So I quickly went up to work on our um, first implementation of a major ERP at the lab and was part of that. Um, I took that opportunity and instead of staying there, moved on to be like an IT project manager. I was an IT project manager for years. I implemented pretty much all of the lab's business systems 
and then moved on to work in our IT department. I actually ran a group of about 35 or 40 business analysts who ran all of our business systems for the lab. So I joke with people, I've been in like what we call divisions or organizations. I've been like five. I've been in finance, HR, procurement, IT. I've kind of moved around and that has put me in such a unique position because I've been at the lab 20 years now. Mm -hmm. So I have a lot of not only historical knowledge, but I understand how things work together. So a couple of years ago, our procurement organization was my customer at the time, actually. And they were ready to undertake a major transformation in their IT systems and their processes. And so having been on the business side and then in IT for a long time, I thought that this was kind of the perfect opportunity to marry the two and really make what would be a transformative change. Yes, that's right. So the latest success you're enjoying uh, is this big Ariba transformation, implementation go live. Congratulations on that. Yeah, so uh, explain to me a little bit on the that transformative uh, project. Like I said, I've been very used to seeing projects that started from a desire to swap out your technology that's supporting your business processes, right? Mm -hmm. And this is the opposite, which I think is why it's transformative. It was business process first. So actually taking and setting up our organizational structure, process flow, our strategic goals, and then taking the technology and seeing how it would lay in with it. Mm -hmm. So this was a complete transformation. Um, we were working to become a partner to the business. I think a lot of um, supply chain organizations are in this model right now. Um, we had been more of a support organization mm -hmm. rather than a business partner. Yeah, and yeah. we were working to transform that relationship within mm -hmm. the company mm -hmm. um, and also to show our value and how we can actually move the business forward. We've gone stem to stern with Ariba products. So we've implemented all the way from upstream supplier lifecycle and risk and qualifications really advanced supplier relationship management tools. And then we aligned our organization to meet the tools mm -hmm. so that it made sense. And it was interesting because when uh, SAP came in to work with us, they, they recognized right away that our alignment really fit with the tools. Mm -hmm. And so now we could get the value out of the tools. And honestly, I think one of the things I'm most proud of having done this a lot of years is we actually implemented with almost zero customizations. Mm. So for once, for the first time, we actually looked at the business process and said, we're buying the best business process. Mm -hmm. How can we use it? Because we want to remain always able to continuously improve. So we're not stuck, but we've really grown leaps and bounds in our maturity curve as far as an organization. And so that's you know why I'm so excited to be Working with the think tank, because I think there's just so much out there, the synergy with other folks that will lend itself to our continuous uh, improvement model. I, that's amazing that it just shows, again, your open-mindedness that, uh, you know, we are willing to change the way we do the business and processes and for the better. What a beautiful story. <laughs> that's Thank awesome. You. Yeah, and then also, yeah, I'm so excited to have you as a chair of our think tank, public sector, because uh, with that mindset, I'm sure we can make the great stuff. And then, of course, you guys can all learn from each other, too. So, yeah, super excited. Yeah, it's public sector. I don't know. Sometimes we get a bad rap, right? Because, you know, it's government. Government's slow. 
government's bureaucratic, right? But when you're in there, people are just the same Mm -hmm. as people outside of government. Right. But, you know, we have more hurdles to jump through to adopt certain things or to make change within our organizations. But I love all the people because they really do think the same and they're thinking about things and how to change them and how to move it forward. So I think the group definitely does not fall into the bad rap. (laughs) Well, in terms of uh, um, supply chain and procurement for Lenal, because it's lab and you guys are... You don't really manufacture, you kind of experiment things, right? So like, what do you well, what, what do you buy from your suppliers? Oh my gosh, it's so funny that you say this because we do all of it. So <laughs> I, I had this talk with some of the folks that work for me the other day, you know, and I, I always give this example about why supply chain and procurement at a national lab is so complicated is we do manufacture, mm-hmm. we do R&D, Mm-hmm. We do maintain 42 square miles of facilities. We do have 12,000 employees using state-of-the-art technology. We are using secure technology. Um, we kind of have it all, which is the problem. Nice. Um, when we first started into our project, we were looking at like how many suppliers we did business with on average each year. And it was thousands. Mm-hmm. And that's really difficult, right? Part of that is that we do have to recognize the areas in our supply chain that are like everybody else, right? Mm-hmm. And optimize those using strategies and category management and buying channel opportunities within Ariba to really take that piece and make that the easy part so that we can take our procurement professionals and deal with the weird things. Mm-hmm. So we have... Um, some folks from Lanel who are part of a team that is on a ship that is going through the Arctic for like 13 months. We haven't seen this on the news. They're doing this huge study on climate change. They basically took a ship, got it stuck in an ice flow and are allowing it to travel along. We had to buy all the stuff to go on that ship and like the logistics to get stuff airdropped and like oh those God. kind of things. How or, do you find what you need? Like, that's crazy. <laughs> it is. We have, if not the largest right now, one of the largest supercomputers in the world. And so we buy things that aren't developed yet. Um, it's really amazing. All, all the way from that down to like parts for buildings that are 75 years old and, you know, they're not manufactured anymore. Right, right, right. I'd love to visit, but do you think I would be even ever allowed to get into that building? I'm sure you need a security <laughs> clearance and everything, right? <laughs> so, um, yeah, we have some great stuff. The Los Alamos, the, the lab and Los Alamos, the town are very connected. So Los Alamos is what you would call a company town. Mm-hmm. Basically, most of the people who live here work here. Um, and the town is physically very close to the lab. Um, there are, is some spillover, like I work in town, but there's a lot of really fun uh, museums and connections to the lab in town. So we have a national park museum. We have uh, the Bradbury Science Museum, which is hosted by the lab. Yeah. Wow. So you and then we have a Los Alamos Historical Society uh, Museum also, which got several of the famous uh, historical properties. I'm actually the vice president of the historical society. And, so you uh, are using your major. Famously, <laughs> yeah, it's funny. So again, like go with the flow. Like uh, one of the things I think is really um, 
key in life is volunteering. So, you know, they always talk about how much more you get back than you give, which I find a hundred percent to be the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of the time, a lot of the most interesting people and the most interesting opportunities have come to me, not necessarily through my career, but through volunteer things. Mm. Um, so I think that's uh, a really good way to stay connected to things you really loved when you were younger and maybe didn't become your day job. It doesn't mean you can't do them, right? Yeah, I love that. That's really actually practical advice for a lot of people. <laughs> that And that's true, because if you just go linear on one thing, but no, actually, you ha- you can keep the passion and they can be the source of uh, all the other connections and networking and opportunities, basically. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to briefly touch upon the also sustainability and uh, you are, uh, since you're the history buff, you probably have a good outlook on future. And uh, yeah, in that sense, so, you know, we talk about sustainability topic uh, in our think tank. So what what is, what is your perspective on our future and sustainability? Oh, let's see. I mean, I think one of the things that I think of most often or puts it in context for me as a history major is the fact of how short our history is. If you think about what the world was like just 100 years ago, less than 200 years ago, and how much, you know, industry and business and the world changed in those 200 years, So I think about, you know, people at the time were very focused on whatever the drivers of the time were, Mm -hmm. right? So really practical drivers, you know, being able to um, expand a global economy, um, make things available for people, right? So that was what was driving them. They didn't realize they were making history. They didn't realize maybe they were polluting the world at the time, right? That wasn't their focus. Uh And so what I love is the fact that we are making history right now. So 100 years from now, people will look back on us and say, what were we thinking? What did we do? Uh How did that impact them? Uh And I think that if you stay in that mindset, it really makes you think about your choices, right? Mm-hmm. And it makes this, this idea of sustainability, it makes sense to you, right? Um, because the choices we're making are gonna contribute to the collective history and to what happens to future generations. Right. That's really what I think about when I think about what are we doing right now? Why does sustainability matter? And how do we make sure that we're keeping that in the forefront of our minds, right? Because there's a lot of competing priorities at all time. It's very easy. Uh, I was reading something the other day, which I wholeheartedly agreed with, which was the fact that, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, we were trying to convince people that there wasn't like a business loss to sustainability, right? Like it wasn't a cost. Or if it was a cost, it was okay, right? That has shifted to now in the world that sustainability is a benefit. Mm -hmm. And that conversation has shifted in just a short period of time. And so I really, I really love that where I am in my career is in a place in history where there is an opportunity there. And I hope that I'll have a chance to contribute in some small way to laying some groundwork for history. 
<laughs> oh my god, you are definitely contributing because uh, you, you, your organization is doing really cool stuff to save the world. I love that so much. And yeah. you, you have to make sure you guys find all the parts you need to make. <laughs> so yes, <laughs> that's so yeah, cool. I, I always am very, very proud of where I work and the work that they do and what I can contribute towards that, not being a scientist, right? I'm blown away by scientists. I think they're amazing. That wasn't my path, but I found a way to keep them moving forward. So that, that satisfies me. Yeah. And you told me you became also yoga teacher, right? Teaching, (laughs) sharing that beautiful practice with, uh, I guess, uh, your community. Yeah. I have a, I have an overcommitment problem as well. (laughs) So so in all my openness and flowing, I tend to have an overcommitment problem, but I think it's why, I, uh, yeah, opportunities come to me. So I'm a pretty energetic person. Um, if you've heard of yin and yang, people would say I have a yang personality, which is the energetic side of yoga. And I met somebody a few years ago and they, they told me, you know, you would really benefit from some yin yoga, like the oh. opposite, like uh-huh. the slow it down kind of <laughs> yoga. And I was like, oh, really? I can't slow down for five minutes. Like I'm multitasking. I'm like, you know, doing something with my child while doing something else. And uh, I was like, I don't know if I can sit still through a yoga class. But I I had a good friend who opened a studio up here in Los Alamos. And I went to her class and I loved it. And I couldn't believe I loved it. Um, But what I found is it created space for me. So with all those busy thoughts, sometimes... I was too buried in the minutia and couldn't get like a big clear vision. Mm -hmm. And sometimes taking a break from it and really going internal, like shake some stuff loose. So I did go on during COVID. My, uh, my friend and I were signed up for a 200 hour yoga teacher training. It was supposed to be in person. We made it through about two months until COVID hit. And then we finished it online. Um, And I started teaching at the studio that my friend has. And for me, the one thing is when it's really hard, like I can't be anywhere, but on the mat. And that is kind of what I appreciate about it. Yeah. And um, many of my friends uh, know me uh, that I'm a huge yoga ambassador. So I'm so happy that uh, you're sharing that space with other people. That's so cool. So now I wanted to kind of wrap it up with asking you, so, you know, your journey has been so zigzag and different, (laughs) but so interesting. And, you know, it was definitely not clear straight line, like you said uh, in the beginning. And after this, a heck of a ride, amazing ride. And I'm still continuing, of course. What do you believe? What do you now believe about life? Hmm. I think as um, I look back, I find that, I think over time you gain more self-awareness, right? You start out not really knowing who you are, which is why it's very challenging to say, this is what I want to be when you don't really even know who you are. So you gain self-awareness. And with that self-awareness, I think you start to see your strengths and your weaknesses. And if you do it right, you lean into your strengths. Mm -hmm. And that is kind of what I've done is I've leaned into my strengths and let them take me on the journey. Mm -hmm. Uh, so when you do this, you kind of like the yoga analogy, you create space for yourself to land somewhere. And I feel like I landed exactly where I was supposed to land. Mm -hmm. Um, and that I am using my strengths 
and that it, that's what makes me happy. Exactly. You figure out the purposeful life, uh, what that means, you know, figuring out your talents and gifts. Self-awareness is a first step. <laughs> that's yeah. Some of us don't find it till 40 or, you know. No, yeah, no, I think it, I just started to figure that out. <laughs> yeah. So finish this sentence. I am optimistic. I'm optimistic that we will create a good history and that there will be a world for my daughter's grandchildren and great grandchildren to live in and enjoy. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So thank you so much for joining me and then sharing this uh, amazing story and uh, looking forward to watching you, your continuous success at Lenol and also partnering with us, you know, and that, that's, a, yeah. that's a perfect partnership. <laughs> All right. Thank you. I really appreciate the time. Thank you. Knowing yourself is the beginning of all wisdom, said Aristotle. Kristen's journey makes me think of young people choosing what to study for university, yet not clearly seeing their path in this life adventure. I'll share Kristen's story with my daughter to share this message. Be open-minded and explore to discover yourself. Then you will see the path that is meant for you. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Industry Leaders Journey. This series is produced by the Industry Value Chain team at SAP, where we are committed to making the world run better and improving people's lives. For more information and to access all of our podcasts, find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Ariba.com.